the volume. The Sessions is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. There's no better place to make every moment more than with FanDuel. They're America's number one sportsbook for a reason, y'all. It's so easy to use. It's safe and secure. That's one of the main things for me. I don't want any BS. I love that there's no BS with FanDuel. Plus, you get your winnings fast. Now winnings are delivered in as quick as two hours. Plus, it's super fun to combine multiple bets from the same game into a same game parlay. It's awesome. So if you are new, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now. Sign up with the promo code Renee, that's R-E-N-E-E, so that they know that I sent you. Disclaimer, 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Louisiana, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, Wyoming, or West Virginia. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text next step to 53342 in Arizona 18887897777 or visit ccpg.org/chat for Connecticut 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com/rg for Colorado, Iowa, Indiana, Illinois, New Jersey, Pennsylvania and Virginia 1-877-770-STOP for Louisiana 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY for New York Tennessee Redline 1-800-889-9789 and 1-800-522-4700 for Wyoming. Visit www.1800gambler.net for West Virginia. Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome to the sessions. Yeah. Um, today, I am joined on Les Sessions um, with Brian Gewertz. Um, he is a longtime uh, head writer of WWE. He now works with The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, um, his like right hand man as The Rock's writer, working with him on Young Rock, um, as well as like many different projects, all under seven bucks. This dude crushes. He also has a brand new book out right now called There's Just One Problem. True tales from the former one-time seventh most powerful person in WWE. Let me tell you, this book really holds up. Um, It's easy for me to say that, I think, in the sense that, like, all of the stories, his writing, talking about, like, the isms that happened behind closed doors in WWE, I feel like this book just paints such a great picture of what it is like working in WWE, what it's like working with Vince, with Steph, with Hunter, what the creative process is like from Raw to SmackDown to pay-per-views to what WrestleMania season is like to what it's like actually working with somebody like The Rock and different talents that he was able to work with and also the people that he was battling against. You know, he goes in depth about his relationship with Paul Heyman when uh, when Brian was the head writer of Raw and Heyman was a head writer of SmackDown and them two just colliding. It is just super, super entertaining um, of just the the nonsense that happens um, in the circus that is professional wrestling. And I, I mean that in the nicest of ways. I love that ridiculous circus. Um, so if you are interested in what it is like being in that position and like what I call like the thankless position of being um, a, a writer in WWE. It really can be, but there honestly are so many like really talented people there that, um, yeah, you're just putting like odd situations to come up with like bizarre scenarios and weird promos. And you guys know all the tales. You guys know 
You know what I'm talking about. So pick up his book. You will not regret it. You're going to love it. Also, he really goes in depth on working with the XFL, which he's now doing again, funnily enough. Um, So make sure to check out his book. But now you can check out the podcast because we got to talk about a ton uh, of different things from, you know, obviously the things that are written within the book to his like philosophies, um, growing up in a family of of writers and people in, in that world. And just as tale of getting from being, uh, you know, wanting to be a Hollywood writer to joining WWE and the the barriers that he was able to break there as a writer. So check it out. Here we go. This is it. This is Brian Gewertz. Brian Gewertz, this book is fucking great. Oh my God. Truth be told, I have not finished it yet. I am a working mother. I don't have a ton of time to read, but it's fucking awesome and like as someone that has obviously been in not I'm obviously I was not a head writer but sitting in those production meetings being around some of the things that you talk about just man transported me to some of those uh some of those incidences how do you feel now that it's like done it's like out there you're doing the media circuit well first of all the first question I was going to ask is if we're allowed to curse on your uh, oh god yeah let him fly so yeah that, that pretty much that endorsement <laughs> answered the, the kill two birds with one stone that was great um yeah it's it's like this is all a new experience for me as you know um in fact I was you know kind of very very much not wanting to be seen nor heard. Um, you know, outside of writer's room meetings and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 pretty cool. It's pretty cathartic to be able to like write all these stories and and share them. And yeah, I would imagine for someone with your perspective, having been in those production meetings, uh, there'd be a lot of, oh yeah, <laughs> moments. I was <laughs> dying when you said you show up to the first meeting and sat at the head table. I'm like, no! And you're yeah. like staring out at everybody like, oh, my God. Incredible. Yeah. First meeting, Washington, D.C., November 1st, 1999. I get there super early. Um, my first show, I do not have any credentials. <laughs> so I'm not allowed into the building uh, until I produce a, a, a printed out piece of paper from Vince's assistant at the time. Uh, telling me where to go. And that's when, you know, uh, Sean Selman, uh, you know, had come out because I wasn't leaving. Um, but he, you know, worked backstage and, and he let me in begrudgingly. And then, yeah, I met, uh, saw Dr. Tom Pritchard there striking up a great conversation. And he's like, oh, you're, you're what? You're a writer. Uh, I think you need to be up at that table. Ribs from the get go. But I actually technically was supposed to be up there. Oh, that's a, at the time. That's what the writers did. Oh. They, they'd always sit at the head table. OK. Oh, like how? OK, so you would have been like where Ed Kosky normally stands up. But but you were not head writer at the time. You were you were like brand spanking new. But the fact is, there were only two of us. Got it. You know, there are only two writers, myself and Tommy Blacha, who had just started himself. Granted, yes, you know, in an ideal world, I would have seen uh, Stephanie or who I hadn't even introduced to yet or a McMahon or two and say, hey, where should I sit for this? But no, of course, I listened to Dr. Tom. I sat up there. Nobody told me to move. And then, you know, I'm expecting like the, you know, like, it will be fine. It will be fine because Vince will give me this beautiful flowery introduction. And then he's like, all right. So seg one, we're going to get into a promo with The Rock. And I can just see everybody with this look on their face, like, who the <laughs> fuck is that? 
And like, oh, maybe they'll introduce me after the meeting. It's like, nope, go out and do the show. And just like, it seemed like a fan won a contest to sit at a production <laughs> table. I, I mean, as if those meetings aren't uncomfortable enough as it is of the like waiting for the whole crew to show up. You're waiting for Vince and Hunter and Steph, Shane, if he's there, like Kevin waiting for the whole crew to get there. And you're like, like for me, my biggest issue was like timing out my pee breaks. Cause I'm like, well, if I'm sitting in there an hour before and I'm chugging my iced coffee and this meeting could last However long, Hours. you can't get up and go pee. Oh, you, I mean, you could try it. But as you know, you will be either singled out on the spot for it mm-hmm. or we got to have a little talk about Renee and her <laughs> unscheduled donation <laughs> times. I actually remember one time when I was doing commentary and we are like deep in the third hour of Raw and I like my teeth are floating. I had to pee so, so bad. So every commercial break, I'm like white knuckling and I'm like, guys, I am dying to pee. Cole and Graves are like they're passing their water back and forth. They're talking about rivers and lakes. As soon as the show is done, I come like tearing through Gorilla and Vince is like, ha, ha, ha. Loves that I have been like dying holding my pee this entire time. Oh, I'm pretty but sure you held it, to held a it UTI, the end but yeah, I did. I made it. I had a similar, similar but different experience early in my tenure. Like we were flying commercial back. This was before the corporate jet, um, and there was heavy turbulence, heavy, heavy turbulence, and I get sick easily. So we were in a limo. I think it was me, Shane, Jr., and uh, Bruce Pritchard. And, you know, Jr. I'm I'm really good friends with Jr. now. And, and back then he was absolutely fine, too. But, you know, it was wrestling rib culture. Yeah. And he's just like, oh, well, what'd you have for breakfast this morning, Brian? I want one of them sausage and egg biscuits with bacon and scrambled egg on, on one of them bagels. You know, and then I just like I have to, I have to ask the limo to pull over uh, and, I, and I threw up in a icy embankment. But no. the cool thing about that. Yeah. And it never really happened since. But I do remember very, very specifically, you know, he's just just very, you know, and this you'll you'll do some more nodding here in a good way of Shane getting out of the limo, kind of like patting me on the back, like, you okay there? You're gonna be all right. Okay, take your time, do what you gotta do, you know, like very, very protective. That's so funny. I, I just I love all of these stories. I love your whole story of, I mean, obviously all the amazing things that you've been able to accomplish throughout your career, and we'll get to some of those things. Um, but you doing the media circuit right now, how how is it for you? I didn't realize what an introvert you were. Or is this still a thing? Is this a struggle for you? I'll tell you this. Not really. And, and the reason why it's not really is because in my world, in my head, I was like, oh, I wrote a book. I guess that means you got to do a book tour, you know, and, and go to Barnes and Nobles and go to, you know, and do a lot of picture taking and interacting with other human beings um and that kind of like um i don't know if i could do that but then like in in a post you know i don't know if you experienced it with your cookbook or or, or what have you but like in, in 2022 it's like oh no no you're, you're gonna do podcast and get social media posts and i'm like from my mets room in my apartment <laughs> done that i could do i'm pretty sure i could do that i'm talking to one person at a time and and yeah, in my home, that's incredibly that's the off. easy part. Yeah, I remember feeling so nervous. So when my cookbook was coming out, I was 
first of all, like COVID was like kind people were just kind of resurfacing from like the COVID craziness and like, are we going out and doing things? But I was a month away from having my baby. So I was like gigantic and just not leaving the house. Um, but I remember that fear kind of creeping in of like, oh my God, do I have to go do signings? What if nobody shows up? Then what? I couldn't handle that. I would just, I'd retire altogether. Oh, I emotionally yeah. could not handle that. There's one potential book thing that I'm debating whether or not to do. And I've had I had that exact scenario run through my head. Um, and, and it's a legit scenario for me. I don't think it's, it is for you because, you know, Renee Young, quote unquote, WWE announcer slash interviewer extraordinaire is beloved by millions of people. <laughs> but still is this with his book, you know, sitting here like that part of it. <laughs> but I'll, I, honestly, I'll tell you the other thing that's kind of gotten me a little bit through this is being backstage with Dwayne on Saturday Night Lives, not even so much WWE, but on Saturday Night Lives especially, where, you know, he would do, there were like scenes that got cut for dress rehearsal. It's on YouTube where he's in a flower outfit. Um, There were times where like he was, you know, in drag or doing a whole song and dance routine. And, you know, I kind of asked him, like, do you ever, like, do you get like nervous doing this, stepping so out of your comfort zone? And he's like, well, look, I look at it one way. If you're committing yourself to do it, you've got to do it 100%. You can't hold anything back. You can't be anything less than completely in the moment and giving yourself into it. Uh, otherwise, it's not going to work. So, like, that's the attitude. Like, if he could do that, you know, hosting Saturday Night Live Institution five times, I could certainly do that in a much more 100%. It's just, yeah, you just got to like lean into it. This is a thing that we're doing. And also that being said, you wrote a book that you should be incredibly proud about. Um, I mean, I know I've been seeing all sorts of other people really backing you on this. And obviously from the the professional wrestling world, just these stories just ring so true to really what it's like backstage, what the process is like, what the interactions can be like. Um, so let's delve into what it is like in the thankless role of a WWE writer. I just had Brian Danielson on the show and we were talking about that because we were just sort of like reminiscing about like different people we had worked with and some of the writers and like obviously the writers don't ever really get the credit for what they bring to the table and what their credentials are because it, it what, like what is that about? Why is that? Why do writers from different television series, soap operas, whatever you want to say, walk through WWE doors and all of a sudden it's like, well, who's this guy? Or girl. Well, yeah, it's it's a good point. It's kind of like like once you step in to the WWE writers room, you know, it's it's not it's not about the name on the back of the jersey, but the name of the front of the jersey, and it's about WWE. And so that yeah, there's there's certainly like a you know this is not about you or you know like I think Vince Gilligan of Breaking Bad fame has his own Pop Funko doll. <laughs> You know, <laughs> yeah. happening with like me or Ed Kosky or so, or something like that. Which would be great Funkos, by the way. Well, yeah, they, they, that would be tremendous. The, Ed's the, got a good Funko head. He does. I always thought he looked like a Care Bear a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is like, this is not about you. And, and there's a little bit of that, especially when I was there. A little bit of that. Um, I put every voice like this in my JBL voice, but it's like, you know, I, I remember when Freddie Prince started and Freddie, you know, has extraordinarily genuine fandom when it comes to WWE and he doesn't have to be doing this. 
Um, but there's like a little bit of like, well, we got to make sure this guy isn't too big for his bitches. And he's like, hey, Scooby-Doo, what are you doing here? (laughs) Don't you got to be solving a mystery or something? (laughs) You know, and he would take it very good naturedly. Um, but that was, yeah, that was the case. It's like, it's, you're, you're not here to, and there's some resentment to that. I know. Um, in terms of like, it's, it's a television show. It's the number one show on cable television. Typically it beat, it wins the demographic on uh, Fox, uh, every week, pretty consistently for the most part. Um, but unlike shows, there are no credits. There are no front credits. There are end credits. It was interesting when you talked about that when you, in the chapter about Vince Russo, when you get into that. And it, yeah, yeah, I think that's a really interesting concept of why there are no credits at the end of the show. It sort of like suspends that disbelief. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I, I don't really know him, but I think that's that's he felt a little I think he felt a little kind of like I'm putting all this work and effort into this show. I'm a pretty integral part of it. And yet there's not only are there no credits, but there's no like. WWF magazine is going to interview the writer, you know, like uh, nothing like that. So you're sort of like, you know, you could say toiling in anonymity, but you know that going in, that's what you're signing up for. You know, like this isn't going to be, um, you know, and and it's kind of loosened, I guess, since then, you know, they they asked me to come back to do, you know, be a talking head on the, on the ruthless aggression docuseries, like, you know, Brian Gewertz, former WWE lead writer and stuff. And, you know, when I was there, that would have been, you know, incomprehensible. Like they, that never was even a consideration uh, to put a, to shine any kind of spotlight on the people who were working there. Um, but, you know, now it is so, but not too much, yeah. you know, there's no <laughs> opening credits or end credits, um, but there's at least a little bit more of a behind the curtain, you know, leniency than there was before. How different does it feel when you do go backstage now? I mean, it's probably been a while since you've done, when was the last time you were like backstage doing a, a segment? So I'm trying to think we- like anytime you came in with the rock, I mean, that was in my mind a long time ago. Yeah. I mean, it was a few. So technically speaking, the last time I was backstage as a quote unquote civilian <laughs> was a couple of weeks ago when Raw was at Madison Square Garden. Um, and that was, you know, I always try to go when it's at the garden. Um, it's a very short trip for me here in New York. And it's always like everyone always says the same thing, which is you look so relaxed. <laughs> like, yeah. So much at peace than when you worked here and you were always running around like, you know, I like to think of myself as, as like Kiefer Sutherland in 24. Um it was probably more like, you know, Miles Silverberg on Murphy Brown, just like running around, freaking out. Um, but, you know, technically, the last time Rock was on the show was the SmackDown on the premiere of WWE SmackDown on Fox. Rock came and we did a great segment with Becky Lynch and Baron Corbin. Um, and we met with Becky the night before uh, at Rock's Hotel Suite. And we put the promo on its feet and everything else. And yeah, I don't know. That must have been. I don't know, at least that three was, or four years. Yeah, I guess three years ago. Typically, as the writer, you know, you go over the promo with Vince and you got to sit in gorilla position with your headset on and give cues to the truck. And if it goes over its time, you know, all the heat comes to you. And I'm like, well, you know, technically, I don't work here anymore. So here, I'll just give it to Ed. Who do you want to go to the truck? <laughs> really? I'm going to be in the crowd. Yeah. I feel like going back in those circumstances is actually like the best way of like, I can still like get the the like fun aspects of things, but I don't have to do any of the uh, eating a shit sandwich 
As you uh, so put it, I remember uh, very fondly being told I had to learn how to eat a shit sandwich. I think I did. And like the taste of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can't just stuff it down and grimace. No, no. You got to enjoy smile. it. Season it. Grill it. Do what you got to do. The NFL week one odds are out. And now's the time to try FanDuel Sportsbook. If you haven't already, get in on the action early this season. Right now, new FanDuel Sportsbook customers can get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. You know, like, can the Rams repeat at plus 1,100? Is that a thing? I, I kind of hope not because I would love to see what the Bengals do again this season. You know, they are stacked in the back. They are, the future is looking friendly for the Bengals. I cannot wait to see what happens this season. Um, so guys, all you got to do is just sign up using the promo code Renee, R-E-N-E-E, to place your first bet and FanDuel will give you up to $1,000 back in free bets if you don't win. Now, there's no better place to get ready for the football season than on FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook and official sports betting partner of the NFL. Download the FanDuel Sportsbook app and sign up using the promo code Renee to get started with your no sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's promo code Renee, R-E-N-E-E. Disclaimer, 21 plus and present in Arizona, Connecticut, Iowa, Illinois, and Louisiana. Permitted parishes only. Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, West Virginia, or Wyoming. First online real money wager only. Refund issued as non-withdrawable free bets that expire 14 days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG. And 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342. That's 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org chat for Connecticut. 1-877-770-STOP for Louisiana. 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY for New York. Tennessee Redline 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee. 1-800-522-4700 for Wyoming or visit 1-800-GAMBLER.NET for West Virginia. Um, okay, let's talk Wrestler's Court because I never got to experience Wrestler's Court. When did it go away? I think it went away in the mid-2000s, I want to Yeah, I get it, <laughs> but it's a little bit of a shame that it went away. I kind of like the... Uh... I would like it, you <laughs> I, I know, like especially if it was it. in full cosplay mode. You know, I have on the cover the Undertaker in like a old English, you know, wig and hat and everything. But he was he was dressed normal, although he did have a gavel, I think. But yeah, it was one of those things where it was a time honored locker room tradition of people, you know, 100 percent before me, wrestlers, um, maybe managers and announcers. I don't know, but not that I know of. But if you violate a certain locker room code or rule or break a rule on the road if you i don't i don't know what the infractions were i mean like ride jumping is a is a like if you start a trip oh, with someone you gotta no, stay no. with them throughout the entire trip you don't be like oh someone invited me onto their bus see ya you know that's a big no-no but for me it was the you know and i just get into it right away the the i had the audacity to accept uh, a gift from edge um, you know, the infamous flash action figure um, that was, you know, this this gift, ex- not even exchange because I didn't give him anything, but this gift was received uh, by me in the view of Hardcore Holly, who like if there was a pro wrestling illustrated, you know, most hated, most liked, most detrimental to your life. If he sees you accepting a flash action figure from another wrestler list. 
he would be number one and, and, and kind of entrenched in number one. So, yeah, I mean, he saw that, you know, and again, there, there was, there's, it's all fun and games with his real implications because his issue wasn't um, why is this kid getting an action figure? It might've been, but it was mainly more like I'm working my ass off. I'm taking bumps. I'm on the road. I am busting my ass. And I'm not getting TV time or the TV time I feel I should be getting. And yet Edge and Christian, who are buddies with this writer, and we were buddies and are, is on TV four or five times a night, every night. What the fuck's that all about? So that was the impetus, you know, for me. Trades for action figures, baby. I'll get you some TV time. Let's go. And Christian, by the way, who was nowhere in the vicinity of the Flash gift exchange. I don't even know where he was, but he was, we were all three of us were brought into court. Um, and yeah, the charge was accepting gifts for TV time, which like, honestly, if I knew that was a thing, I would be the most corrupt um, <laughs> writer. Like send me your gifts. I'll put. Yes, please. Here's my address. I'll open a post post office thing. Yeah. Little PO box. <laughs> Uh, I love it. Um, okay, so I also just love realizing like how much of your family is so entrenched in this world as well. I mean, your uncle Howard, uh, he inspired you to be a writer, your sisters in the business as well. Um, give me a, like a little bit of a backstory, what it was like growing up, seeing the accomplishments of your uncle and thinking like that was the line of work that you wanted to end up doing. Yeah, well, you know, yeah, that's exactly it. You know, there was something really cool to be like a, a, a time, a third grader, you know, watching an episode of taxi and not understanding any of it. <laughs> and, but seeing your uncle's name, you know, as the writer of the show. Um, and then I thought that was really, really cool. Um, and then not just from an ego thing, but actually wanting to do it. So I wrote with my, a friend of mine, um, we sold out very, very early. Um, because I, my friend and I, both of us Jewish wrote the Smurfs first Christmas. Um, and we, when we casted it and performed it in front of our elementary school, third grade and down, uh, in a predominantly Jewish Long Island, uh, elementary school too. So, but there was like, that was the thing that was, you don't see Hanukkah specials on. Yeah. We didn't have eight crazy nights by then. No, that was way off. So that was something. And by the way, I got an ego off of that because the next year, fourth grade, I wanted to write a Pac-Man play to perform in front of the school. And the teachers are like, what are you talking about? Uh, you're not. And I'm like, do you know who I am? <laughs> yeah. Do you want to see my credentials? Oh, I'll forward my headshot and resume. I'm ready to go. The Smurf play. Lady, you know. <laughs> but, but yeah, there, there was, you know, seeing his name in the credits and, and that kind of fueling my passion to want to do what he does. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to, you know, it wasn't so much, oh, I want my name in the credits. It was so much as like, wow, he's writing a television show and it's being seen by millions of people. Uh, how cool is that? That's yeah. a real, um, so that's really what I wanted to do off of that. And, and it, you know, it extended with all the other shows that he wrote, um, you know, and that included, you know, just like big kind of shows like, you know, Larry Sanders show and wings. He was the showrunner on wings for many God, years. What credentials he has. Wow. Oh, yeah. Wrote a Simpsons. That was very cool. And I was a freshman in college, you know, his Simpsons was on. You know, so I went to Syracuse, the Newhouse School of Communications, uh, to major in television writing. Um, and my sister um, did not want to do any of that. But then she took a summer class with a guy by the name of Professor Robert Thompson, 
who was my favorite professor at Syracuse. And he also coincidentally happened to be the favorite professor of Mick Foley at Cortland University. It was right before, you know, he came to Syracuse. So we'd go into his office. He tried to cold call Mick for us. <laughs> who probably talking. picked up and was like regular classic Mick. Always yeah. sweet. So like all of that came together when, you know, my sister was interning at MTV, an internship my uncle had helped her get. She was at MTV. My uncle and myself eventually were writing on Jenny McCarthy, NBC show at Jenny coming from MTV. And that's, yeah, my sister, you know, she's the one who gave me the call and said, they needed a writer for these WWF specials for SummerSlam 99. Are you available? Can you write some samples and see if you can get hired? And that's what I did. So crazy. And that's when you met Dwayne for the first time, right? He was one of the guests and he kind of gave the nudge of like, hey, do you want to come maybe do this? And then they actually followed up. Exactly. Yeah. That was one of those things where uh, I was not looking at anything other at all than these five shows for MTV and then go back to Hollywood. Like the idea of writing for WWE, like it wasn't like, do they even have writers? Like I have no idea. There's no Um, credits. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What was some of the conversations that you were having with your uncle during that time, which I imagine was a pretty, obviously a very important uh, time in your career of deciding like, okay, I'm going to go and work for WWE, but I guess like the rap that WWE gets amongst like the writing and entertainment community at the time. Yeah. Well, my uncle's always, you know, he's always been very supportive. He's also always been very pragmatic. Um, And the fact of the matter is after Jenny got canceled, uh, my writing partner and I were, you know, out of work for like almost a year. Um, If not, maybe even a little more. Now, granted, we were writing our spec scripts and going on meetings and having a lot of almost got hired. Love a good meeting. Give me that yeah, free water bottle, baby. <laughs> yeah, WWE is, is you know, the, the McDonald's of meetings, if that makes sense. <laughs> we'll start the standard bearers. But yeah, like this was the opportunity, you know, when, when all is said and done and you really I truly had a decision to make of like on the one hand, you're leaving Hollywood and not so much leaving Hollywood, but leaving you know, the established writer's path, you know, like WWE is not affiliated with the WGA. So Mm -hmm. uh, the writer's guild. So it's, it's, you know, a different animal entirely. Um, And on the one hand, it's like, yeah, there's that there's, you know, you're moving off the grid back to the East coast. Um, But on the other hand, you know, the way I looked at it, it was like, you're, you're going to a show that, you know, the product you really, really love and feel like pretty comfortable you know, in that environment, as far as like knowing all the characters and having a fandom and also a security in knowing the show is not going off the air. Yeah. You know, if you're successful here, you could be here. I never thought it would be like 16 years, but (laughs) I'm like, oh, I could be here for a year or two, tell some good stories afterwards and then just move back to California if need be. If only we thought that it worked that way. Right. Just pop in for a quick minute. Psych. Fucking decade later. You're like, oh, okay. what Al Bundy said before he started working at the shoe store, you know, <laughs> yeah. it has health insurance and, you know, all that type of stuff. So, yeah, it was appealing. I find I mean, I've always found this fascinating. And you talk about it in the book about how you can be the head writer of Raw, of SmackDown. You know, you, you're working on this show that just constantly has these amazing ratings. It's notoriously chaotic. You're working under these like insane confines. And that just doesn't translate. 
into the into like the into the Hollywood world. Why is that that those credits don't really carry over? I don't get it. I don't get it either. Um, I mean, maybe it's the whole like WGA and no credits thing because they don't know. Um, But also, you know, and I'd like to think that it has gotten a little bit better since. I have no idea of knowing if that's the case or not. It has to. I mean, obviously, with the success of The Rock, of Cena, of what the Bella Twins have been able to do, like, I think even just from like, that from Batista, from that standpoint, I think definitely opening the eyes because every time you step on a set away from WWE, people are like, wow, look at you go. You can do all of these different jobs and you're on time and you're polite and all of those things. Um, I always think people are kind of caught off guard by, I guess, the work ethic that you you garner over your time of working in WWE as well. Yeah, I mean, it really does provide you with a great work ethic if you didn't already have it having it be so encompassing in your life 24 seven. Um, but yeah, I mean, the truth of the matter is, you know, and I, I wrote about it to an extent, but like, as far as Hollywood is concerned, you might as well be working at like Ace Hardware or something like that. Right. You know, it's like, crazy. It's upsetting. It's really upsetting to me. I hate it. I, I don't like it either. And it's also like a little like, you know, obviously it's, it's a little disrespectful as far as like, no, this isn't, you know, if you're not a wrestling fan, because I've, I've heard this joke a million times as a wrestling writer, everyone always says the same thing, which is, you mean it's scripted? You know, that kind of thing. And that's that's an a, a level like, OK, that's a nice little let's get an icebreaker, what have you. That's fine. But then the insulting follow up question, which maybe, you know, a third of the people do afterwards is like, you're right. What do you write? Garg, you know, and holding a chair like, no, it's a little bit more nuanced than, you know, a monosyllabic, you know, ogre saying grog. And, and, you know, some stereotypes are hard to shake. I mean, if you're, if you know nothing of the world at all, it's like, oh, well, he was a quote unquote writer, but not a real writer. He didn't write on sister, sister. (laughs) That's so fucked up. It's the first show that came to my mind for some reason. It's a good show. Sister, sister. (laughs) I could sing the whole song, but I'm not going to. Um, Who's someone now that you wish that you kind of get your hands on and run through some promos with and, and be uh, be their head writer. You know, the women's division is, you know, completely different now um, than it was back then. As far as like, not so much even the individual talents, because there was a lot of talented people back when I worked there, but there's opportunities were not yeah, there. Exactly. And then the way, you know, I remember, you know, there would be, like the women, like like Trish and Victoria and Mickey, like and Melina, they they want to do steel cage matches and ladder matches. And you know, the prevailing thought at the time was like, well, does the audience really want to see women do that type of thing? And like, uh, I kind of think they do, but <laughs> yeah, they, that wasn't what was you know. Um, it was like, no, it's a, they want it to be like, you know, let up and, you know, take your mind off of the, your troubles and whatever, you know, rationale for it. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, I mean, like when I watch the women's division now, I see people. I mean, I got like a, a small taste of it working with Becky, um, you know, uh, on, on that SmackDown. But yeah, the, the people, um, the talent involved right now between, you know, just again, like Bailey and her group. Her as a heel too. Bailey as a as a heel is just fantastic. Totally. Um, you know, Zelina Vega. Like, oh, you see, there's and there's so many people I'm forgetting, and and you know, and, and Sasha and Naomi, and hopefully, you know, hopefully something can be worked out and they come back. It's like a whole different landscape that I never really got to experience 
as far as the match of talent plus opportunity, as you mentioned, that wasn't really a thing back then. The talent, yes. The opportunity, no. So that would be something that, you know, would be great to work towards. How different do you imagine it is right now having Hunter at the head of creative, having all of these changes? I mean, I'm certainly like on the outside being like, what's happening? Like yeah, same. everything is turned upside down. The tea is piping hot, as we say. Um, but with Hunter now as the head of creative and it seems like almost immediately there's already this like, oh, what's happening on the show? Who's coming back? What's happening? Um, there's something really interesting about that to me for sure. But what do you think um, the future is going to look like with Hunter at the head? I mean, I think it's fascinating. It really is. And I don't like, I know people like throw these superlatives out like, oh, it's so interesting. And, and who knows? It, it truly, truly is. Yeah. You can't downplay the point of like the sole funnel of everything from a walk to the ring to a graphic and everything being funneled through one person, in this case, Vince, no longer being there. Um, and now it's like a completely open-ended thing. You know, the irony, of course, is like if in 2002 you said Triple H is going to be head of creative, people would be running for the hills, not because of his creative mind, but the fact that there was just a, you know, innate conflict of interest as far as being a character on the show versus writing the show. And it's always going to be, well, how does it affect my character? Even if you're really trying not to see it that way, he's no longer a character on the show. And he has seen and learned, you know, from Vince for good and for bad. You know, he he's a loyal as anyone who would say, you know what? Okay. For you, for the sake of this company, I will simulate sex with a mannequin in a casket <laughs> during a lot funeral. Um, I don't like it. The line it. in your book, by the way, of like the Macy's Day parade that was like the same week as like the sex scene, whatever. Yeah. We're, we're Just a little bit of everything for everybody, you know? <laughs> Smiles on faces. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he has he has learned so much. He already knew so much going in because he's just a, you know, a diehard fan. And not just of like, not like me, like like WWF, you know, WWE through and through. He was 1981, NWA, Harley Race, Kowalski. So I think he's taken... You know, I guess just again, just based on the shows that I've seen going back to that stuff, but also having been in WWE long enough to recognize the value of entertainment. And, you know, and if you're just going to do it like one specific, you do have to have a little bit of that variety for everybody. It, it is, you know, in terms of like having a different person at the helm, it's just going to change the show. But for me, and one of the things like, you know, this from experience things in WWE production meetings, but for me, like my biggest, my biggest enemy at WWE every year consistently was not any of the talent, was not any of the office. It was the clock. You know, sometimes these production meetings end so late, but the show is are starting in literally hours, if not less. Oh, we would start the show without a show. It's happened. It's stressful as all hell. And from a writing during the week standpoint, you know, Vince, um, it was so, so busy with everything that a CEO of a multi-billion dollar corporation should be busy with that, you know, when you finally, you know, you, you'd have these meetings that would get scheduled for noon, get pushed to three, get pushed to five, get pushed to eight. I guess we're going home. Nope. We're meeting at 11, you know, like that kind of thing. Fortunately, like the, the late night ones didn't happen all that much when I was there. But the sitting around part happened a lot. 
but with Hunter having, uh, you know, and not that, you know, talent relations is not a full-time job in and of itself because it is, but with having hopefully significantly less responsibility from a corporate standpoint that Vince did as the CEO, um, that's so key because if you can now meet with Paul during the week and not necessarily just have to focus on the main event stuff, crossover segment or the opening segment, but really dig into it and get into long-term storylines and all the characters, and he has that time to give to it, that's going to result in a lot of positive changes. What is your take on a company like AEW not having a writer's room and not having writers to lean on? I really don't know like what the structure is. I don't know how um, Tony does it as far as does he does everyone get a blank piece of paper uh, determining like here are the segments now go do it. Is there kind of creative guidance? I know obviously it's very talent friendly, you know, when it comes to giving them their creative space to go out and do their thing. Um, I think there needs, you know, in my opinion, there needs to be at least some kind of direction to be given. <laughs> so people aren't repeating themselves and people aren't doing something that someone else is planning on doing later and that kind of thing. Also, just some people aren't great promos. and There's nothing wrong with that. It's like learning that skill and being able to work with somebody that can help to kind of like shape a promo and put some stuff together. Like some people need more of that. I saw your husband with the shopping cart going down as Dean Ambrose going. I could, I could see his soul. I don't know him very well, but I could see the soul leaving his body. Mm-hmm. I could watch it and go, oh, my God, he hates this. And he kind of should hate this because this is him. I could tell. Uh, and now, you know, in AEW, it's like you could tell, like, I'm home. Yeah. This is where I should be. For some people, that's like perfect. As you were alluding to, some people like that collaboration, like have someone to work off of. I don't think anybody in either company likes to be handed a sheet of paper and say, go do it. And get this line in, this word specifically. You have to mention sauerkraut because (laughs) Vince loves sauerkraut. Like, no, but what does that have to do with anything? Um, So, yeah, I think as long as as long as there's some structure and nobody's stepping on each other and there's, you know, like I can't. AW is really, really successful. When we launch a show at seven bucks, you know, we look at the cable ratings. You know, we're always hoping to be, you know, ranked at a certain, you know, as high as possible. You can make the comparison of like, oh, well, compared to like 1998 and WCW, look how low it is. No one's watching it. Like, yes, they are ranked. You know how many shows would kill to be in the top five or top three of the 18 to 49s on cable every single week. So they're doing something right, for sure. Let's talk a little seven bucks. Like how, or I guess let's talk about your relationship with Dwayne first, about how you guys really developed this rapport with each other to now go on to all these amazing ventures that you guys have together. Dwayne's MO has always been, I don't know who you are. I've never met you, but let's see what you got because I have nothing to lose. You know, if what you say is good, then great. I benefit. If what you say is bad, well, I'm still the rock. (laughs) But if you could, if you could enhance or help in some way, then great. And that's kind of like, that was the basis of our, you know, working relationship with WWE because, you know, I did certainly did not invent the rock by any stretch. The rock was already a WrestleMania main eventer. By the time I got there, you come to the table and you 
produce and success begets more success and it leads to more trust and it leads to wanting to work with someone again. And that's really like the basis of not only my relationship with, with The Rock and Dwayne, but like a lot of people, you notice he'll, he'll work with directors over and over again that he trust with. He'll work with Kevin Hart and other actors over again. He'll work with, you know, Bo Flynn is one of our, you know, producers on many, many um, Rock's movies. He likes working with Bo over and over again. Uh, same thing, you know, Hiram Garcia, president of Seven Bucks, uh, Danny's younger brother works on every movie with Dwayne. So like once you get into that circle of trust and, and establish that like, hey, this is we're on the same wavelength. We, we don't have to agree on everything, but we'll hear each other out. You know, that's really the foundation of a, of a great like working relationship and friendship. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's so cool to see um, all the things that you guys have done and that you continue to do, which brings me to you being back working with the XFL, baby. Can you believe that the XFL has been such a constant threat in your life? Um, no, <laughs> there is a chapter dedicated to the XFL, as you know. 2001 XFL. What would my cheerleader line have been? I'm a blank by day, but an XFL cheerleader by night. Your Canadian origin? Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll do the, the most offensive, stereotypical, like, I'm a moose hunter by day, <laughs> but at night, I'm an XFL <laughs> cheerleader. That's what I assume what Canadians just do in their spare time. Yeah, something like that. We're usually out just trying to catch a moose in, in nature. Uh, but yeah, just the lines that you guys were putting together for these cheerleaders, trying to give them their, their personalities on camera, trying to just, like, figure out what the XFL was at this time, this new rules, this like edgy side of the sport to now what the XFL is going to be. And I think the 2020 version of the XFL made a lot of great strides. You know, it was definitely the we have to make this, you know, entertaining like the WWE is entertaining, um, you know, might have been a fair idea on paper back in 2001. But it was that and the really subpar football play um, and a myriad of, you know, ton of other problems has been well documented, um, you know, kind of sunk that. It was very surreal to be on that plane celebrating that first night rating of the X. <laughs> yeah. Such babes in the woods, having no idea that, you know, the the price is right mountain climber, you know, that then falls off if you bid too high. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was surely coming. But yeah, it was funny. Uh, you know, we had our XFL fun in 2001. Fun, I call it. Other people would not call it that. And then, you know, for me, it was out of sight, out of mind. And then I saw there was a, a call on, on our, you know, our outlook on our calendar saying that like Danny Garcia wants to have a conversation about the XFL. And when I saw it, I like I called one of, uh, you know, the members of our team who put the meeting together. And I'm like, I think you guys messed up. I think you mean NXT. We're doing something with NXT. And then she's like, no, the XFL. It's right. You know, Dan, Danny are purchasing the XFL and it's back into my life personally. But, you know, as terrifying as that sounds based on my 2001 experience, I know that this is, this is essentially an entirely different animal and they have like so much passion and knowledge of what to do, what not to do. You already see it in its, you know, early phases and everything and the social media and how they're doing all the training camps. That's the best thing I think about the 2001 XFL is that it provided a blueprint of how not to start <laughs> in a football yeah. league. 
We're in the red over here. Let's bring it back the other side, see what yeah. we can do. Um, what is it like working with Danny Garcia? Because she seems fascinating to me. She is like the epitome of being like a real boss bitch. People are going to say, oh, my God, he's saying that because he's of their employee or whatever. But she is legitimately the smartest person I've ever encountered or known. She just has an approach to everything that like in WWE, a lot of it is very knee jerk and very reactionary. And they're like, well, that's an idea. Well, what do you got? OK, well, I do. You know, and her approach to business, to relationships, to everything she does is just so elevated and so like. Yoda-esque isn't a word exactly. It's just like, I never would have thought of it that way. I need more friends like that. Yes, we all do. Because <laughs> yeah. my reaction to things, especially at WWE, was like, well, that's stupid. What's stupid about it? I don't know. You're stupid. You know? <laughs> yeah, it can get like that real quick. You're like, I don't know. I hate this. I hate you. Leave me alone. Well, you got anything else? No. Well, then shut up. <laughs> no, just her worldview is uh, uh, her like superpower of seeing the big picture and nurturing people and making people feel valued and respected and everything. It, it's such a, it's such a key and such a great, um, you know, great attribute to have as a, not only as a boss, but as a human being. Yeah. She sounds absolutely incredible. Football fans check out the three and out podcast with John Middlecoff only on the volume podcast network. John brings his unique perspective as an ex-NFL scout to the volume to break down all the news around the NFL and college football. Whether you're looking for game predictions, coaching searches, the ins and outs of the NFL front office, even an occasional golf tip, John has you covered. Download 3 and Out with John Middlecoff, only on the Volume Podcast Network. Um, Dark Side of the Ring, for you guys to be pairing with them. Uh, seven bucks, pairing up with Dark Side of the Ring, doing Dark Side of the Territories. Give me a little rundown on what's going on with that, because I'm a huge Dark Side of the Ring fan, as I think uh, you know anyone from the wrestling business is. Even friends of mine that don't know about wrestling, I'm like, okay, if you don't know about wrestling, go and like just watch a little bit of this, because if you aren't interested in that, come on. It's juicy. Yeah, no, it's I mean, look, this show um, originated due to the fact that Dwayne was a big fan of Dark Side of the Ring and would post about it. And when someone with 300 plus million followers, you know, it reads a post that gets attention. Um, and when I saw the post, even though I'm not on Instagram, I probably should be. Yeah, I know. I tried to tag you for your book and I was like, mm, I don't think he's on. I know. Here. I'm sorry. Twitter. Am I, yeah, I did you're that. on Twitter. I got, the, I got the Twitter. That was a Danny thing. It's a lot of Mets content on there, though. But well, I mean, this is okay. the way to do it. Um, <laughs> and yeah. When, when we started full time at seven bucks, like Danny said to me, like, look, you, you should have a social media presence. I know that wasn't the thing in WWE. Um, Instagram or Twitter, you should probably pick one of them. And knowing you, you'd probably like Twitter a lot more than Instagram. We need more Brangoort selfies. Get them out there. Oh, my God. Yeah, that picture <laughs> section in the book, by the way, that was a struggle to find the pictures. Um, so Dark Side, I noticed the, the, the posts and was like, I like that show, too. And then Dwayne was like, well, you should meet with those guys. Do a general with Evan and Jason, uh, the creators of that show. And we did. They're great dudes. They, they, they really are. They're, they're such passionate fans and and quality filmmakers and, and, you know, truth tellers and that type of thing. But here's the thing, one thing, the one thing I want to go back and, and not correct you, but, but set the record straight is that 
we very much didn't want this to be a dark side of anything. Oh, did I say that? It's not dark side. It's actually Tales from the Territories. Tales from the Territories. My bad. My bad. It's Tales from the Territories. And specifically because when talking with Dwayne about it, he was like, look, they're great at that show, but they've done it. In my experience, there's dark stories, there's light stories, there's batshit, crazy, insane stories that he experienced firsthand by, you know, by, by being on the road and in various territories growing up as a kid with his with his dad and just, you know, hearing secondhand accounts and firsthand accounts. Um, so he's like, if you guys meet, if you guys, you know, meet together, let's come up with something that like really captures that Wild West period of time. Uh, and that's what we ended up coming up with is like, let's you guys handle the dark side stuff. I know Vice TV loves like, you know, they have a ton of dark side, but we really want to go in a just like crazy, insane, wild and, and outrageous side. Plenty of those stories cutting off Michael Hayes ponytail. Let's get that in there. <laughs> well, that's yeah, that could that should be its own uh, sitcom. <laughs> yeah. Honestly. Uh, before I let you go, I do want to talk about your relationship with Heyman because um I love that chapter of you guys talk or you talking about just your relationship with him, butting heads with him, the Looney Tunes reference of you guys just kind of checking into work together, punching in, sort of tolerating each other, getting in like literal fist fights with this man. I would pay good money to be on this plane when he's trying to goat you into an actual uh, physical fight. Uh, but how how did you guys mend your relationship? I think the key to that relationship and it's and it's unique to Paul because I really haven't like uh, as you know I'm not a screamer and yet I found <laughs> myself screaming at Paul as he screamed back at me I'm not one to like get suspended for fighting in the middle of the writer's room like if you had like I I would have taken those odds um and and you know bet the safe like no on that at the beginning um <laughs> Like never in my like of all the things to be suspended for, like, yeah, like like getting into a slap fight with another writer would be like so far down the list. <laughs> and yet all those things happen. And then what you like, were this would not be happening in the Frasier writing room. No, no. I am almost <laughs> guarantee you that that was not happening in the Frasier writing room. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, look, and, and what you would have alluded to, you know, the infamous time Paul said you know, on the plane, which again, I don't remember, but I must have said something very wise ass that got a laugh out of people that ruffled his feathers um, to the point where he very just calmly just said, okay, here's what I'm proposing. I will give you five free shots to the face if I could just have one. <laughs> you know, again, this is on a plane, on a corporate jet. And yeah, and then, yeah, I write about it. Shane teaching me how to punch in the bathroom, all that type of thing. That wasn't even what got us suspended. That that preceded that incident. But at the same time, it's just hard to stay mad at the guy. Sure, he's he's charming. He's, he's very charming. Happy Heyman, you know, he's, he is a charmer. Um, and I never really took any of that stuff personally. I, I took a lot of, you know, and every, there was subterfuge and he's listening on phone calls and I'm, you know, talking about this talent and, you know, you know, we, we like negotiated a talent trade once like I had to be approved by Vince, but it was like, it was the Geneva convention or something like the way we were like, you know, he's selling me. I think the trade ended up being, um, I'm trying to remember. I think it was like Eddie Guerrero, Benoit, 
I forget who else for the un-Americans. Um, that was what he was proposing. The un-Americans being Tess, Lance, Storm, and Christian. He knew I like Christian as a friend. And he's proposing this. And, you know, of course, he's giving me the, this is the hottest angle in the history of wrestling. You are, I am, I am kicking myself for even thinking of departing with these three fine individuals. That's a good Heyman. Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm just like, you know what? You got to throw in Jericho. You throw in Jericho. We will consider this on the raw side and the raw associates, um, because that's often left out of the retelling of this story was that Jericho was thrown. Like Jericho was pretty key to this. And the really the only reason for this happening, you know, Vince was just like, yeah, all right, whatever. No, I think I think Vince also liked the idea of the Un-Americans on Raw at the time on the live show. But yeah, for me, Jericho was the key because he is just so versatile a performer. Oh my God. Be yeah. Able to do comedy and seriousness and, and a great wrestler, great promo. He just busted out the old Lionheart Jericho. I didn't see yeah. that one coming. Yeah. Holy shit reinventing himself every week yeah i think he's Um, incredible but yeah but now like having also gone through the the wars and everything and the and just the time healing all wounds so i saw paul you know we always like like as i wrote when i see him backstage now it's big hugs how you doing a lot of kibitzing i told him uh, that i was planning on writing a book this was a year before you know it came out it was before i went to australia for rock last year and i'm like oh great you'll love this i talk about how you gave me the opportunity to punch you in the face five times. If you could have one, isn't that great? And he's like, you wrote about that. I'm like, yeah. It must've been really hard to kind of pick and choose what all, like there must be really great stuff that's on the editing room floor somewhere. I went into this book thinking and probably thinking correctly, like you're only going to have one opportunity to do this. You must put in the best of the best of the best, you know? And of course, once I finished, there was like, oh yeah, there was that. Maybe that too. So maybe there's opportunity down the road for a follow-up. But I can definitely tell you, like in putting this together, it was, you know, carefully parsing out like, you know, the stories that I remember the best and remember the most vividly. And also in my test audience of not the book, but just telling the stories to people, I've always gotten the biggest, holy shit, that happened type reaction. Okay. Before I let you go, I've got two questions. One. Okay. So the title of of the book, there's just one problem. True tales from the former one time seventh most powerful person in WWE. So what is it? Vince, Kevin, Hunter, Steph, Shane, who's the six ahead of you? It's a good question because, you know, in, in the actual poll that I took that from, um, because the, like the, uh, the, and I'll just say the pro wrestling Mm. torch, Okay, would come out with a yearly most influential list. And I don't know how they determine that. And I'm not a subscriber to it. So it was told to me. But, you know, I I did someone like, you know, they took a picture of it and I saw that I was ranked ahead of Triple H. So that, you know, kind of speaks to the accuracy of it. (laughs) Even 2004, at the height of his Triple H-ness, you know, on Raw and everything. But I, I don't know. I think your list is very, very accurate. I think because technically speaking, the actual list was all of wrestling. You know, the thing with WWE, as you know, as you know so well, whether you're a talent, an announcer, a writer, you're only as good as your next show. You know, there were times where I felt like, hell, I'm top three. I am kicking ass today. And then like literally the next week would be like, I am like below a used Mountie action figure as far as... (laughs) 
Vince's eyes and how important I am. Oh God, what a bad feeling that is. I remember feeling that at certain points where I'm just like, mm, we're definitely not on the same wavelength right now. I'm trying to get back in the good graces. Well, let me ask you, was he as, as just out of curiosity, was he as in your headset as like, you got to say this, you got to say this, or were you like given some space? So it was kind of a little bit of both where like, yes, he was in my ear, but I, I think what it was for me and what made like, it's a hard job to begin with doing commentary. It's definitely a, it's, it's far more work than I think anyone really understands it is to jump in there and do that. I think it was for everybody figuring out how to produce a woman in that spot. How do they want me to sound? What are they like? What is my role? Am I on there as a fan? Am I on there as an analyst? Like, what am I contributing to this? Also, my husband's wrestling for the company. Are we addressing that? Aren't we? I think it was just a lot of like mixed. We're not sure. We want to have a female voice out there, but I'm not really sure what we're doing with this. So there was times that Vince would for sure be in my ear. Um, But I'll tell you what was really rough about that was hearing him. There were so many times that I'm like, could you repeat that again? Like, I just couldn't hear him. I don't know if that's a me problem. I don't know if it was him mumbling, but there would definitely be times that I'm like, he was talking to me, but I could not tell you what he was trying to get me to say. Um, To being, doing an on cam and him like, I remember him, he kind of gave me shit for something one time in an on cam. Can't remember what, I think it might've been during um, a Firefly Funhouse bit which is a mouthful to begin with. But I think he started like yelling at me during like a 45 second on camera. I'm like, okay, I'm still talking. I'm getting in trouble right now for something. Um, So yeah, it was, it was an interesting time of just trying to figure out what I'm doing out there, how Vince wants me to be. I also think my actual personality is a little bit different from what they wanted me to. I think he always wanted me to be very professional, very smart, very like that broadcast smooth. I'm like, that is not me. (laughs) So I felt like I was always trying to like kind of keep up with that where I'm like, oh shit. Anytime I think like I was uh, not that, I think we kind of butted heads a little bit. So it was, it was an interesting time to say the least. There's so many times I would you know, because I'd be in gorilla position, especially during my segments and stuff, and hear what was being said to Michael Cole. And, 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 and the Michael Cole thing is amazing because, you know, there were times where, you know, occasionally, you know, everyone's human. Like Vince is yelling at him to say something that he had just said, you know, two seconds ago. Oh, yes. You're live on the air. So you can't say, I already said, that, you know, <laughs> yeah. and like, why are you saying that? It's like so <laughs> crazy. Some people like Cole are just like, this is like, I'm used to this. This is fine. I deal with it. And then some people like McFoley who are just like, nope. Yeah. I, I kind of went back and forth a little bit where there's times where I'm like, okay, like, listen, I can have thick skin and I can hang. And if you, you know, if you want to give me some shit for something, that's fine. I understand that. But there was definitely times when I was like, this just isn't working. Like, I, I talked about it before, I think with Ariel Hawani when I was saying how we were, it was um, when Tyson Fury was in and I didn't call him the like lineal champion or something. And Vince was like, you ruined it, screaming at me. And this was during a panel. So like I'm fully on camera for this. 
screaming at me for it. He's like, you've ruined it. Like I like ruined Tyson Fury's run in WWE because I did not refer to him. I think I just called him the Gypsy King instead of calling him the lineal champion. And it was like, shit hit the fan. But I was, I had already been doing commentary for a certain amount of time at that point. And I was like, I'm just burnt out on this. I don't like doing this. This is not the role for me. Like I'm happy that I got to do it, but like I'm not dying to be a commentator. I like hosting things. I like you know, doing the interviews, all that stuff, but like doing commentary and trying to like get in these sound bites and like, God, I'm like the run on sentence queen. He probably was like, he was just probably wanted to kill me sometimes. <laughs> well, when I heard the gypsy came, coming out of your mouth, that's when I said, that's it. I can no longer abide <laughs> by this show and watch it. I'm going to go turn on Netflix. Yeah, I can take it no more. I can take it no more. Um, okay, I've had you on here for longer than I was supposed to. Um, I'm sure you have other things to go do, but if you can just give me like a quick little love for Roddy Piper, I know he was your guy. He was, he was absolutely my guy. Um, you know, there's a whole chapter, there's half the book (laughs) dedicated to Roddy, Roddy and my dad, you know? So yeah, that was one of those things where a lot going against me on paper, as far as Roddy has a healthy distrust and dislike of wrestling writers seeing as how he never needed one uh, in his entire career. He's, you know, a hero that you don't want to disappoint or let down. And he's someone who, if you're working with him, any segment with anybody can go south in a matter of seconds. You know, either it doesn't go well in the ring or you say the wrong thing backstage or you get the fact wrong or whatever. It's like, it's so you know, like, oh, you know, anything, I don't want to fuck this up. I don't, I don't want to, Oh, you know, Vince, could, I can get into a battle of whatever with him. I don't want Roddy to dislike me. Thankfully, you know, Roddy is he was such a cool guy. You know, Bruce Pritchard helped a lot as far as at least talking me up. So that helped tremendously. But you know what? Just like, you know, Roddy was the genuine article. So he can tell he could tell better than anybody whether this is some kiss ass who's trying to uh, curry favor. So I'm easier to work with. And I'll just say whatever's on a stupid piece of paper or this is a genuine human being fan of mine who has so much love and respect for me and really, really wants to make a good impression. He could tell he has a bullshit detector like no one else. I was really happy and lucky to be able to like work who works with the people who are on posters in your bedroom and then it works out and you remain friends with them. Um, so yeah, I'm really, really grateful that that happened. So safe to say that you love the Canadians from Roddy Piper, Edge, Christian, Jericho. Canadians are your people. Yeah, I, I think I think so. <laughs> you know, and, and and I went to school at Syracuse, which wasn't that far. Hell yeah. Well, listen, dude, your book is awesome. Um, anyone that wants to know more about the wrestling business and how things work behind the scenes, some really just colorful, super fun stories. This book is the shit. Go out and buy it right now. Thank you. All right. I will talk to you soon. Hopefully. I mean, I'm sure our paths will cross again at some point. A big thanks to Brian for hanging out. Uh, We definitely have to have him back on again. I would love to have him on when they start doing Tales of the Territories uh, because I do love the dark side of the ring stuff so, so much. So the idea that The Rock and Seven Bucks, Brian Gewartz, they are paired up with these awesome dudes from Dark Side of the Ring and at Vice. Um, I'm really excited to see what uh, Tales from the Territories looks like. And of course, Young Rock just knocking it out of the park. Um, So Brian will be back 
on this show. Mark my freaking words. So yeah, guys, do yourself a favor. Pick up the book. There's just one problem. True tales from the former one-time seventh most powerful person in WWE. Uh, Thank you, Brian, for hanging out with me. I hope that you guys enjoyed it. I hope you got a little peek behind the curtain of what it is like being on the creative team for WWE. All right, guys, I'll catch you next time. This has been The Sessions. The Sessions.